Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name's Will Duffin. I'm joined today by by Karen O'Neill, who's an advanced clinical practitioner who works in Stockport ED near to Manchester in the UK. How are you, Karen? I'm not too bad, Will. Thank you for the invite to join you today. Oh, it's great to have you on the podcast. And um, um, unfortunately, Karen, you have succumbed. Tell us what's happened. Um, yeah, so I'm now on uh, day nine of being COVID positive. Um, took them well, um, originally low grade temperature um, and had uh, many of the classic symptoms. But uh, pleased to say that despite a little bit of an ongoing uh, pyrexia at the moment, feeling tons better. So bear with me if uh, the voice goes slightly. Right, you're an absolute trooper. It's great that you're still able to even you know, speak to us and it sounds like you're on the road to recovery. So I'm really pleased to, to hear that. But um, yeah, so, so Karen is a Bart's clinical practitioner. So she's a nurse in, in the emergency department, but she also has a clean keen interest in global health. She's a, a regular member of our faculty and was teaching on our Keswick course only recently when this all started to, uh, the pandemic started to kick off. She's got an interest in humanitarian aid, disaster response, outbreak surveillance and control, and uh, has worked for a, a number of different organizations. Um, and she's worked as the medical advisor to the UK National Ebola Response Programme um, out in Sierra Leone. Uh, and you've done a num- number of other uh, deployments and other, uh, other disasters that you've been involved with. Which, which are those, Karen? Um, thank you. Yeah, so I've had the privilege, really, of um, working in quite a few different environments. Um, started originally back in Uganda, um, living and working there on a development project. And um, it's a country I'm still um, involved with in, in a couple of different projects. Um, I've also had the opportunity to work in India in the slums in Mumbai. Um, and do some paediatric workouts in Malawi as well Um, and was involved in disaster response during the typhoon Haiyan um, that struck the Philippines back in 2013 so I was on the UK medical team for that. Um, More recently I've been working to save the children on the migrant response Mm -hmm. Um, and like you say um, Ebola was a huge a huge role for me working as a medical advisor um, with an organisation called UK Med, and that was um, the UK's response to uh, the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. Yeah, so you've had a really interesting and varied career. That's great. Um, so let's let's talk first of all about Ebola, um, and it'd be nice to draw out some of the lessons that we we can learn from that response that we can take into the COVID-19 pandemic. So can you set the scene for me? This was, so we're going back now to 2014 in, in Sierra Leone. Yeah, tell me what, what how it all, all kicked off. Yeah, so that one, one of the key striking differences immediately is that um, it was about eight months for um, Ebola to be declared a public health emergency. So that was a very a slower response to the outset. And I think that's one huge key response that we've taken forward because I think We've all acted um, during this global pandemic at this time. We've acted very fast. Um, and we saw what was going on in China. We've learned lessons from Italy. You know, we're all learning lessons from each other globally. Um, Ebola, um, we always, if you can ever be grateful, we were always grateful that Ebola was not a respiratory disease. Um, it was 
passed it was transmitted through bodily fluids and and, and contact um so if you think about Ebola we had 30,000 just under 30,000 cases um with about 11,000 deaths and with a death rate of about 40%. So hugely mm-hmm. hugely contagious. Compare that to COVID-19 where as it stands from the figures today I think we've got almost one and a half million cases um 83,000 deaths globally mm-hmm. um with a with a death rate of about roughly about 6% although I appreciate that varies hugely between countries. Yeah. Um so albeit Ebola was on a, a lesser scale um it, it it had a much higher death rate um yeah. than covid yeah that that death rate of 40 percent is quite terrifying isn't it yeah absolutely but as you say fortunately the r naught the the uh, transmissibility of that uh, virus was a lot lower so i understand it was only slightly above one absolutely whereas covid 19 is thought to be somewhere in the between two and three you know it varies but um, that that seems to be the difference between that remaining as an epidemic. So it was localized in in West Africa with a few ca- sporadic cases in the US and and the UK and and um, also Italy, I think back back then. But um, whereas COVID nineteen has reached true epic pandemic proportions. Absolutely, absolutely, and yeah. you know, sort of very similar to Ebola. Um, back at the yeah. start of COVID, when we you know we started to hear of of this disease that was coming out of China. And, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't too dissimilar to that back at the beginning of Ebola when we were sort of starting to hear about these cases. Um, mm. And I was quite familiar with Ebola myself because the previous current outbreak, uh, the, the largest global outbreak had actually been in the community where I'd been working in North Uganda in Gulu. Um, mm. Albeit that wasn't the time that I was working there, but um, it was still, the memory was still very, very prevalent in Northern Uganda when I was working there. And, you know, the healthcare workers there would be able to, tell you about people they'd lost, people that had been infected, and people that were still part of studies um, looking at the effect of that. Um, so, you know, back at the beginning of Ebola, we would talk about, could this become an epidemic? And it was it was considered that it, it was unlikely that it would become an ep- epidemic. And nobody ever imagined it would spread on the scale that it spread, because yeah. it had never been seen before in Ebola. So what was different then about the 2014 epidemic of Ebola? Because this wasn't the first a- outbreak. There had been multiple previous outbreaks in West Africa with localised, more, more, more rural locations. But why was it that it spread to all the neighbouring countries uh, and, and, and ended up affecting a, a kind of global uh, or international response um, for fear that it would, it would continue to spread outwards? I think largely due to the to the slow response to it, um, very porous borders as well. The borders in West Africa, um, this free flow between all the countries in the area, mm. um, and the nature of how people live. Um, I don't have all the answers to that, if I'm honest. Um, mm. But this was certainly um, something that was almost even considered. Could it be Ebola at first because of the scale that it was spreading on, um, and in West Africa? Mm, I um, see. And you know, very very similar. I recall sitting in a meeting probably 10 to 12 weeks back here in the UK um, about planning ahead of um, coronavirus or COVID-19 and sort of saying, well, you know, I think we very much need to change the language from not if this happens, but when mm-hmm. it happens. And I explained about Ebola and my role in Ebola and how 
initially we sat around a table thinking could Ebola spread on a vast scale and it was considered that you know it probably wouldn't and then 30,000 cases later um, you know we we soon learned our lessons from a, a slow start. Wow so with your experience of Ebola and how quickly that that took hold do you feel like you were slightly ahead of most other people in anticipating this this pandemic that you you kind of knew how these viruses can can behave and, and how they can spread through a population it's i think it's impossible to to anticipate a pandemic and it's something that mm. we've always dread but the the respiratory nature of this disease um certainly puts it um at higher risk of transmission um but i think having been through something like this before you could heed the warning signs particularly when we started seeing spread um, beyond China um, mm. particularly when we started to see the situation that was unfolding in Italy then Spain then France and we started to see cases in the UK and you know for me I suddenly had this feeling of familiarity and I remember one evening sitting at home in my lounge and um, crying and I, I couldn't explain what the feeling was. And I realized actually the feeling was exactly the same feeling I had in Ebola. Um, when we were, you know, everybody that was involved in that response was working absolutely flat out, getting very little rest, concerned about their loved ones, concerned about work colleagues, concerned about healthcare workers on the front line. Um, and, you know, there was, there was barely a day off um, during the Ebola response in about eight months. And I remember getting to my first day yeah. off and being feeling utterly, utterly broken. And I think this is where it's really important at the moment during this COVID-19 outbreak. And mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we're talking about well-being, we're talking about rest, we're looking out for mm -hmm. each other because that is so fundamentally important because we know this isn't going to be here just for a month or two months. You know, this could go on for many months to come yeah absolutely and you so wow so you were flat out uh, working on the Ebola response for eight, eight solid months that must have been quite an intense time in your life yeah indeed it was it was it was a very very difficult time but actually when you're working towards something like that you're so focused and so driven to do it and I was working with such an amazing team and you know healthcare workers from the UK putting themselves forward to go and support their mm. international colleagues who were, you know, the healthcare workers out in Sierra Leone were doing a phenomenal job. People that were stepping up to um, put themselves right on the front line, um, despite all the stigma within their communities. And you know, thinking about it now, you know, that's a real that's a real difference with Ebola and with COVID nineteen. Um, as somebody that's just had COVID nineteen, I've had nothing but an of an outpouring of love and support um, from from people um, all over the place, whereas people that contracted Ebola were stigmatised um, and people didn't want to go near them. And, you know, many years later, people are still feeling that stigma within these communities. Wow. Um, and I think that's something that we're very fortunate not to be experiencing with COVID-19. Yeah, wow, that must have been uh, really, really difficult for people that contracted the disease in Ebola for the survivors. Um, and their families uh, to be ostracized by their community for, for having had the disease and wow I, I can't imagine what that must be like yeah when i worked on the migrant response with save the children um and you'd speak to people that were trying to enter europe and 
um, some people, you know, I'd speak to them, they'd say they were from Sierra Leone and ask why they were leaving. And, um, you know, they'd be saying, well, we're still completely ostracized from my community, mm. um, unable to get employment, living in more extreme poverty than they were living in before. And it, it was, it was, it was hard at the time to hear that because you thought yeah. we've worked so hard in Sierra Leone to try and eliminate Ebola, yet it's awful to hear that people are still having difficult living circumstances because mm. of stigma. Yeah, and there's some other kind of nuances to Ebola with regards to cultural um, practices around how um how west africa the uh the bodies of the dead are are dealt with with they can you tell us a little bit about what happened with that and how that that increased the 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 transmission in 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 uh in the west africa yeah so culturally within the communities um particularly the communities we were working with in sierra leone and it's common other countries across africa west africa is that um the families deal with the bodies after death it's it's cultural it's respectful and um, they wash the bodies down and the bodies are buried very very quickly um ceremonies involve touching the dead body um which um obviously in ebola was a huge source of transmission um so burial teams were established that would go in and take bodies away from the community of people that had had died from ebola and obviously, it's very, very distressing then for the families who couldn't hold their traditional funerals. Um, yeah. And this caused it caused quite a lot of hostility mm. um, in affected communities because they didn't want their loved ones um, being taken away. Um, and there was a lot of um, work done at a local level um, to try and get the burial teams accepted by the families to lessen the grief for them um, and it was simple things like the color of the body bags um, so the body bag color had to be culturally acceptable um, things like establishing um, female burial teams not just male or combined burial teams yeah um, and you know it is sometimes where i do see some parallels with covid in terms of loved ones can't be with their relatives if they're dying of COVID um, or suffering with COVID. And, you know, I think the UK health workers, and I'm sure it's the same across the globe, are doing an absolute phenomenal job to be with those people um, to try and avoid a gap where families would ordinarily be at their side, um, to use technology to interact with families that can't be with their loved ones and be at their loved one's side. Um, and also there's the cautions after the person has died of COVID-19 mm. that the mortuary have to take. So at every level, we've got people doing phenomenal work. The mortuary teams have really stepped up and, you know, and, and they're, they're doing a fantastic job um, to try and ease the pain for families as well. Yeah. It just seems unbearably cruel that COVID positive patients in who are hospitalized who are severely unwell that to, to reduce transmission, uh, infecting their, their loved ones, that their loved ones aren't able to be by the bedside with them as they would be in any other circumstance. I just think that's just it's awful um, for, for the patients and, and families and staff having to, to, to kind of work through that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's where we've got, you know, extraordinary healthcare workers that are doing their absolute best. 
you know, I've always had a motto that you treat every patient as if they're your own relative. Um, And if that involves giving that person a little longer than you ordinarily could give them at this time, that's more important than ever before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so going back to to Ebola, what what was, um, was there a particular turning point in that epidemic where you started to see the uh the, the the mortality falling or uh think the situation improving and can, can you remember that 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 happening and yeah and I, I i think it was always very reassuring i think uh, very similar to now in this current pandemic we were current you know we were watching those numbers that were produced every day and mm. when you started to see them going down and um, particularly when you started to see survival rates improving as the communities um had more trust in you um, and they could see that people were surviving and going through Ebola treatment centres earlier which was giving them a better chance of survival Um, you know that became very very heartening but at the same time what you got with that is you've got people being more um, lapsed maybe in their precautions so you know very similarly um, uh, in Sierra Leone they had they had isolation measures you know like we do yeah. And um, public gatherings are, are a huge thing in Sierra Leone, you know, parties on the beach on Sundays and family right. gatherings and, you know, dancing's a, a phenomenal part of their culture. Right. And I, yeah. I, I'd, I'd previously been to Sierra Leone before um, mm. the Ebola epidemic and, you know, seen how busy the beaches could be at the weekend. And, you know, people weren't allowed to go for a walk on the beach anymore. And and the police were very, very stringent about these measures. And, you know, that did help gain some control. But as the numbers went down, people started to get a little bit more laps. You could pass through some border controls and they wouldn't be checking your temperatures anymore. Or in my experience of being there myself, that the buckets of chlorine that were normally outside shops um, or at different social points weren't there anymore. Um, and then suddenly we did see another spike in cases and we did see another yeah. outbreak. And we, you know, I remember liaising with a team that were out in Sierra Leone at the time and they had this huge outbreak and we'd started to send less people to help. Mm. Um, so suddenly, you know, the international and the national workers in Sierra, Le- Sierra Leone had this new spike in cases and were mm. absolutely overwhelmed. So I think it's where we have to heed the caution that if our social isolation measures do start to get reduced, we do have to still be careful. We still need to be washing our hands. We still need to be very mm. careful, you know, in how much we do have contact with people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting how um, the government in their strategy has anticipated uh, a, a degree of non-compliance within the population. I think their their modelling based around a rough, roughly 70% compliance to social distancing um, lockdown measures uh just recognizing that within a population i think uh, there's always going to be a, a cadre of society who, who who just won't play by the rules uh, i think like, like you say if the, if the lockdown is relaxed um how can we be sure that that, that people will not uh, will, will take those new freedoms and and take them to the extreme and and we suddenly get an, a, a second spike in um in the uk i mean that's um it's a very real real problem isn't it absolutely absolutely and mm. you know i think the majority are heeding the advice of social isolation but equally we don't need the majority we need everybody um, yeah. you know nobody's immune this doesn't discriminate 
Um, and, Something. you know, people really need to consider not just the impact on themselves, but on their loved yeah. ones and also on healthcare workers. Because, for example, yeah. now I'm, you know, I've been out of action now for eight days. I'm going to be out of action longer because I still have a temperature. Mm. And if I'm at home and well, I can't do my job and look after them or their loved ones. So it's a, it's a very frustrating situation when people don't think that the rules apply to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a little bit like voting in an election, isn't it? it, it it's, I think for an individual basis, it might feel like meeting up with a friend or going to visit your second home if you're a, a Scottish politician, a Scottish health minister, for example, or um, uh, you know, the, the, these kind of small freedoms that you might allow yourself, these exceptions that you make on an individual level may not seem to make a big difference but actually if everybody in the population did that we'd be in a real predicament wouldn't we it's it's that kind of collective sense of, of social responsibility that we need to engender in everyone and yet anyone listening to this who's uh medical or non-medical um yeah so i completely agree karen we really need to everyone does need to just stay at home don't they yeah and it's absolutely it's the same for the health of all our key workers because if we don't mm. have our key workers you know we don't have that that network of support that we're all currently relying on yeah absolutely yeah i mean for you as um frontline nurse in the emergency department that must feel very disempowering and frustrating that you can't can't be there to to help your your colleagues yeah absolutely and um it was actually on shift on a night shift that i took them well um, I you know, just felt really unwell, checked my temperature and realised it was high. And I actually left shift in tears because um, I felt wow. so strongly that's where I should have been. And I felt mm. like I was letting my team down. And yeah. then my team was sort of frustrated because they couldn't hug me because <laughs> they obviously Aww. couldn't touch me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I work with a phenomenal team and they are all trying their absolute best. And I think it's really where you know, we had some time to prepare. Um, mm. You know, my, my trust have been doing fantastic work in their preparations and I hear the yeah. same up and down the country. Um, I know areas, you know, there's, there's parts of London that are having huge numbers of cases. Mm. We're seeing a substantial number of cases and up to the point that I went off, we were seeing more and more. Mm. Um, and pretty much every patient that came into the emergency department um, was was query COVID-19. Wow. Um, so we used but the point you left. Were you still having hot and cold zones, or had that with that had that gone by then? No. So we we st- we've still got running a hot and cold, um, yep. COVID hot area of um, the emergency department, and then the cold for everybody that's non non COVID. Because I think that's the key here to remember is that you know other illnesses and injuries they don't stop because of COVID nineteen. And what we were seeing, and I believe this is the trend across the UK, is that the the, the non-COVID-19 presentations, mm-hmm. so, you know, that chest pain and people, abdominal pain, you know, all the, chron- the conditions that we normally see an abundance of in the emergency department, we're just not seeing. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge worry that people are staying away because of the fear of coming to a hospital or mm-hmm. the worry of burdening us. And, um, you know, it's not a burden if you've got chest pain. We, we want to see you in the emergency department. If your child's unwell, we still mm-hmm. want to see you in the emergency department and not feel that there's nobody there for you. And I, I think that's a really important message to put out to people that, you know, you still get ill and it still might not be COVID and you still might need uh, 
you know, health services, be it your GP yeah. or, yeah. you know, 111 who are, again, another group of people doing phenomenal work and absolutely yeah. overloaded right now. But, yes, you know, there are other things going wrong for people. And, you know, yeah. I think as a healthcare profession, we are worried about where those people are right now. Mm, absolutely. And in terms of staff sickness so you're off work at the moment within your department as a whole has, has that been a big issue um yeah indeed we have got a, a fair number of people off sick at the moment mm. um which again you know is is, is another worry um mm. but the trust trying you know people from all across the trust are being redeployed um, there's lots of contingency planning for staff going off sick everybody's doing increased numbers of hours and um, we've got consultants working 24 hours a day um, wow. So, despite the fact that it's a really difficult and a very, very challenging time, I think the sense of community right now is fantastic, um, mm-hmm. and people are really, really pulling together. So, you, you, there's a real camaraderie in your department. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I described it to somebody yesterday as like a protracted um, major incident, mm-hmm. you know, and. People are finding it hard. People are really finding it hard. You know, people that you wouldn't have expected have said, you know, I'm, I'm crying every day. And I think that's a completely normal response in a very abnormal situation. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to all be really looking out for each other. Um, because when you're on, you know, when we're all talking about how we're feeling and our emotional well-being right now, I think a lot of people are struggling. Yeah, absolutely. And when when you're on shift, Karen, um, what kind of things are you doing to safeguard your well-being to help you get through that shift? I think a lot of it's talking to each other. Um, our trust have um, opened what we, opening what we call a sanctuary, um, so a, a room that staff can go to if they need it. Um, we've had no end of thoughtful and kind donations from across our community, be it local restaurants sending us food in. Um, people sending you know thoughtful things like shampoo and toiletries so we can shower at work um, people making headbands for us and bags to take things home in for us um, you know and, and small gestures like that make a huge difference they really really do yeah I think the outpouring support for health workers and key workers uh, on the whole has been just phenomenal from the general public and the the, the Thursday applause I, I just find that really emotional uh, it's just so powerful, isn't it? When you go out on your street and then everyone's kind of clapping and cheering. I just think it really motivates me. It makes me think, hey, look, I need to really get out there and, and deserve these applause. I need to do something to really make this, uh, you know, to honour that. Yeah, it's, it's so true. I mean, last Thursday, I was I was really unwell last Thursday. So um, my husband opened the, um, opened the window and I could hear all my neighbours yeah. shouting, you know, Karen, this is for you and clapping. And, Aww. you know, I'm, I'm it reduces you to tears because you know you yeah. can't you can't believe that people are clapping for you and you think oh that that's for me <laughs> yeah yeah it's, that's quite amazing isn't it? it really is um and so in your um in your department um what how are patients managing this are you seeing a lot of patients who are very fearful um uh, just, just kind of petrified is it how how are they coping with with uh with the kind of covid era healthcare um i think patients understandably are 
are very frightened. Um, and I personally found it very, very difficult as an ACP when I've had to, you know, it's a patient I'm treating and I've had to say to them, look, I think, you know, you're showing all signs of COVID-19 and they look petrified. And then, you know, having to then relay that to families as well. Um, and having more end of life conversations and mm. conversations about ceiling of care. And yeah. I don't think I appreciated until I've had a little bit of time, time to reflect with being off how much that was getting to me that mm. um, how many do not attempt cardiopulmonary resuscitation forms that we've been filling out, you know, more mm. so than ever before. And I, I think that's really, really difficult. And I think in yourself, that's a huge part of, uh, of, of the learning and growing in, in, in this response is how you approach those conversations with the utmost dignity mm, and, and how to handle that. Yeah, yeah. And I think certainly for us in primary care, we're preparing ourselves for a, a, a huge demand in, in, in palliation in cases that will be discharged from hospital that will need care in the community um, optimize their comfort and dignity in the last days of life um, and I think we're going to be spending a lot of time doing home visits um, and having some very difficult conversations um, there's likely to be a shortage of syringe drivers we're, getting, we're looking at alternative palliative care um, drugs and, and modes of delivery that, that will meet the demand of the kind of sheer numbers that we'll be seeing uh, and I think that is the next big thing for certainly for, for my my end and, and um, yeah uh, but, but I think you're you're ahead of in the emergency department you're ahead of the curve you're you're seeing you're seeing that right now that must be really really tough having those those conversations with people yeah yeah very very difficult but mm. ultimately you want to give everybody the dignity and the respect yeah. that they deserve and you know that that's absolutely paramount right now. Yeah, and yeah. you know it's new learning for all of us in terms of it's been a long time it was a junior nurse when I was last involved in palliative care um, in, and you know we do very small amounts of it on occasion in the emergency mm. department but yeah you know, it's it's learning about palliative care um, all over again and for me as well I qualified as an advanced clinical practitioner last November so mm. um, you know it's the, the learning curve during this response again has, has been phenomenal. I feel like every shift I go into, I'm having to read a whole new, so much has changed in the last 24 hours. I'm having to just read up on so much more stuff. And I, I, I always feel behind. Um, it's so difficult to, to keep up to date with, with what's going on, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, and I think, you know, we hear that from all healthcare professionals. It's like, you know, you're having the update of the update of the update guideline and I think a lot of people you know we go into work we're doing extra hours at the moment which none of us mind you know this is what this is our our, our call um but also what we are doing in our own time is spending hours trying to you know read the most updated evidence read the most updated guidelines share best practice amongst each other mm. um you know I've been blown away by the number of webinars that have been put out there yeah. Um, grand, the grand round for my hospital today was done via Zoom um, mm. and, you know, updating us on the latest figures, the number of COVID positive patients in the hospital, 
updates going on in the hospital, daily briefings. And it, it's great to see the that information flowing freely around the medical community and actually the wider community as, as a whole. For example, uh, the the pattern for making uh, face masks with a 3D printer, the that has been shared patent free uh, so that anyone can produce these these masks and we're seeing this this kind of level of information sharing on a scale i don't think we've ever ever seen before in in the which is all in the spirit of community and and the, the fact that we're all in this together and that we're here to, to help one another i think that's been really really amazing yeah i think you can see that as well in the number of people that have returned to practice you know stepped out of retirement um you know, all our expedition colleagues that currently aren't able to go anywhere on expedition. So, you know, they're coming, they're, they're supporting the NHS during this time. And I just think that is like phenomenal testament to our healthcare colleagues for doing that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is. The, the, everyone out there who's wherever you're working, whether you're a paramedic, a nurse, a GP, um, a healthcare assistant, a, uh, anyone uh you're doing a phenomenal job it's um you know we're, we're all part of a very very special team Absolutely. um in terms of your work when, when before you were off sick when you were working in the emergency department presumably you were in fairly full-on ppe you would have had a, a respirator mask and a visor and gown is that right you were um yeah so well the P, as we all know you know ppe personal protective equipment has been a very um changing situation yeah um is is probably a fair statement um and i you know i think it's an area that's caused everybody a lot of concern because right back at the beginning when we were getting you know the occasional person into what's called the pod um for mm. assessment you know maybe they'd travel to some of the category one countries like china or iran mm. and you know back in those days we were putting full pp on um including the um the fit tested masks and that was just to take a swab um and now you know that for that process now um you're wearing a standard apron gloves and a surgical mask Mm. um and an eye protection um to take a swab so there's there's been huge um changes um in the last two to three months in the ppe um and I, i wouldn't be surprised if we see big changes in that again going forward so I mean that in itself is quite confusing and in trying to keep up with those changes as well so for even for suspected covid positive patients you were just wearing surgical mask absolutely yeah absolutely Mm. did did you feel very exposed did you feel quite vulnerable with, with with that I think because I'd been quite involved in the training uh for the 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 donning and doffing the pp so taking it on and off um, I personally felt quite quite secure and I, I felt quite reassured that it felt like the um, hospital had a good supply um, of PPE. Um, how that might have changed now, I'm not 100% sure because I know there's been new guidelines since I've been off. I think there's probably been like six or seven different guidelines since you've been off, Karen. It's <laughs> constantly evolving. Um, and one thing we do know is that that whilst there are allegedly huge stockpiles of PPE, the uh, amount of product that's reaching the front lines is is hugely variable. Um, and, and what's been amazing, certainly in Bristol, uh, there's been a huge community response to that, and uh, you know lots of 
uh, local industry around around here is is in the business in the business of manufacturing and sourcing its own uh, PPE, you know, masks and uh, and aprons and things are all being produced. Even scrubs. I've I've got some scrubs made for me by a bride bridal shop on Christmas steps in Bristol, and they've been amazing. They're making um, scrubs for health workers for just the cost of materials, and it's. Uh, just that, you know, that, again, that's all part of that, that, that incredible community spirit. Oh, that's absolutely phenomenal. One of the really kind donations we had was a local school that had donated all their chemistry goggles. It just right, blows yeah. you away that people are thinking, um, you know, yeah. thinking about our protection um, from what they hear on the news as well. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, and um, I, I understand, so you're at home, your husband, so you're, you you've tested positive for COVID, you've, you've still got symptoms, you've still got the fever. How is that at home with, with your husband who at the moment doesn't have any symptoms? That must be really, really difficult trying to live together and, and to, to protect him. How, how is that working? Um, so living rather separately. Um, yeah. <clears throat> thankfully, he's not shown any um, symptoms himself. Um, he was swabbed, but had an insufficient swab, unfortunately. Um, being a key worker himself but um, you know it's difficult particularly when it's it's a distressing time and you you very much underestimate the power of the hug (laughs) when you really want that hug and you can't have that hug Um, and it's the simple things that you realize that you go to do you both go to touch the same thing and then you're wiping things down avidly and you know even just go to make a glass of water for you know I go to give him a glass of water and he we're yeah. not we're trying not to touch the same thing so it's all the things that God. you actually take for granted um yeah. in terms of sort of human contact I, it must be very difficult I mean the, the advice is to try and have separate bathrooms and live in different areas of the house but unless for those of us that don't live in mansions it must be really difficult to to do that to not have both go into shared spaces yeah absolutely and I don't think everybody's that fortunate are they Mm, absolutely well Karen it's been real pleasure talking to you I'm sending you a huge virtual hug right now Um, you've been amazing on on the front line I I know uh, you're definitely back in action very soon and it's been incredibly frustrating being uh, being stuck at home Um, but from on behalf of you know everyone at World Extreme Medicine we we really hope that you uh, you know it's a, a quick road to recovery for you Oh, thank you so much, Will. Appreciate it, and you stay safe too. Thank you. Before we close, was was there um was there anything else you wanted to add? I just want to say a huge thank you to all key workers out there because you're doing a phenomenal job, and you know we we appreciate it so much. Thank you. That's great. Okay. Well, thanks. Um, thanks so much for your time, Karen. If if people wanted to ask you any questions or reach out to you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, via Twitter, via um, any kind of social media, um, or via yeah. WEM. Yeah, it was a great to chat to you, Karen, and uh, yeah, get well soon. We wish you all the best. Thanks ever so much.